This is Sharice Scott. Welcome to my podcast, Mumbai to Maine. Join me as I take a deep dive into Maine's food story, past, present, and future. This episode is part of a special series celebrating Maine's bicentennial. This bicentennial series is sponsored by Eat Maine. To celebrate Maine's bicentennial, Maine Magazine is creating a visually rich anthology commemorating the people, places, and things that have molded Maine's culture over the last 200 years. In every monthly issue, the magazine will showcase present-day Mainers promoting and elevating our state and shine a spotlight on the organizations and leaders that are forging Maine's path into its next century. We had had this meeting. We, we knew this guy, and we had done deals with him in the past. And we, you know, went to the meeting, sat down at the table, and flipped him the business plan with the title page. And he glanced at it, and he said, well, the first thing we're going to have to do is put the real name of the business because we don't want, like, the gelato fiasco to be on. He thought that that was a description of what the plan was going to be. Uh, and we said, no, 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 that is the name. And he said, why would you call it the gelato fiasco? That's not going to be easy to get a loan for. And... Um, Sure enough, we didn't get a loan from him. Welcome to Mumbai to Maine. My guest today is Josh Davis, co-founder of Gelato Fiasco, the fastest independent-growing gelato pint brand in the U.S. Since its launch in 2007, Josh and his business partner Bruno Tropiano have created over 1,500 unique flavors in their Flavor Foundry flagship location in Brunswick, Maine. The best-selling flavors can now be found in 5,000 grocery stores across the country and at two charming scoop shops in Brunswick and Portland, Maine. Join me as we find out how they created their award-winning brand of gelato, inspired by Italy, but perfected in Maine. Back in 2001, Josh and Bruno met at Bentley University and became fast friends. In 2005, both Josh and Bruno graduated with degrees in finance and launched a real estate venture company. But by 2006, they noticed that things were changing in the real estate market and the business was not going to be a viable one in the long term. So Josh and Bruno started exploring other business ideas. Since they both shared a mutual love of food and travel, they knew they wanted to create one thing in the food industry and do it really well but they didn't quite know what that one thing was. Until one day, Bruno's mother, who was visiting from Italy, suggested that they sell gelato. After all, she said, there were a million gelato stores in Italy and only 35 million people. And here in the States, there were 350 million people and only a handful of gelato stores. Building a gelato business all seemed great in ideation, but This was back in 2006 when the gelato craze hadn't even hit the U.S. market yet. Josh and Bruno still felt inspired and immediately booked a trip to New York City, the closest place they could find to test out traditional gelato. They even signed up for a gelato-making class that you'll hear about later in the podcast. The one thing that continued to resonate with them after this fateful trip was this business of making gelato was something they could see themselves investing their time, money, and creativity into and do it right. The best part was it gave them endless possibilities to create fun, artisanal flavors that you might not find in a traditional gelato store in Italy. The irony in all of this is the idea for Gelato Fiasco was not born in Rome, Italy, but right here 
in Rome, Maine. Hey, Josh, it's so great to have you here in the studio today. Um, So let's just get down to basics, right? So what's the difference between gelato and ice cream? So gelato is just Italian-style ice cream. So I I actually love it when people interchangeably use gelato and ice cream because um, ice cream gelato is just ice cream in Italy. And I actually love it. I say this in the introduction to the cookbook, actually, um, that um, one of the joys has been in, in being in Brunswick, Maine and being around uh, Maine is when people come up and they – they interchangeably use gelato and ice cream too. It, it means that it's become um, common enough that um, that it doesn't need its own special kind of. I mean, I think gelato is special. That's not my point. It's just that I like the idea that in Brunswick, Maine, or in Portland, Maine, or in Maine, uh, that um, that gelato is seen as as just. A, a common enough treat that people can enjoy it frequently and and think of it just as their ice cream place. Right. Let's just go um, get some ice cream. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have no, you know, I'm people apologize. It's actually really funny to me because people apologize. They'll say, oh, I love eating your ice cream. Oh, I'm sorry. It's gelato. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I get a kick out of that, but, you know, it's not necessary to apologize. I yeah. think it's actually great that you don't think of it as something that's in a different Know, category or whatever it's 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 where you go get your frozen dessert and it happens to be a style that originated in Italy and and the main difference between gelato and ice cream comes down to really air and uh and butter fat so gelato um milk based gelato has uh less butter fat in it than traditional high quality ice cream so ice cream actually there are federal laws about what you can call premium super premium ice cream it has to ha- have a certain amount of butter fat in it and it has to not have too much air so more premium ice creams um have more and more butter fat and they have less and less air. And the idea behind it is air is free. And if you freeze air into the um, into the product, you can fill volume. So you can fill the container up for free um, or for less money than if you have a really dense product. So gelato is um, very, very, very dense, much denser than even the most premium ice cream. Um, so if you had a package, a pint-sized package of gelato in your hands and you were holding it with a pint-sized package of ice cream, the gelato would feel a lot heavier in your hand. So if you go to the grocery store and you have a chance to kind of grab both, you can feel that for yourself. And that's how you can also tell whether an ice cream is going to be high quality or not by feeling how much it weighs. So when you grab a pint of ice cream that's cheap, you know, and it feels very light in your hands, that means you're paying for a lot of air. There's not much stuff in there. It's it's filling the container, but if you let that melt, it would only fill maybe a quarter of the pint container. Whereas if you grabbed a really high-end quality ice cream and you let that melt, it could fill half or three quarters of that container because they're not adding a ton of air to it. And how does that compare to gelato? Uh, Gelato traditionally has about 10 to 12% air versus 30, 40% um, in ice cream. How about sorbet? So, you know, sorbetto and sorbet, sorbetto is the Italian version of sorbet. So sorbets are French and Italians or Italians call their sorbet sorbetto. So they're essentially the same thing. Um, But uh, from an eating quality, um, not from a technical like composition quality, but from eating quality, we want our sorbetto to be um, very dense and creamy and indistinguishable from its milk-based cousin. Traditionally, 
uh, sorbetto originated in southern Italy where uh, milk production is lower. Um, so if you think about, you know, Italian cuisine, the Alfredo sauces of the world live in northern Italy. They're milk-based sauces and the, you know, traditional the tomato tomato, yeah. uh, tomato uh, sauce um, comes from southern Italy. Um, now it's homogenized through the whole country, but Italy as a concept is a fairly new, you know, new country and they had regional cuisines. And so you'd see those traditions. So it originally was more for the gelato maker to know if they saw strawberry gelato that they knew that it would have strawberries, milk, cream, and sugar. And if they saw a recipe that just said strawberry sorbetto, it would be strawberries, sugar, water, lemon juice, salt. Um, and so they, from a eating quality though, would still taste intensely like strawberry and be, um, you know, very dense and creamy. They, um, they, really just would it's whether it has dairy or not so um in our shops we call anything that is dairy free sorbetto um and uh that's you know down to if there's even an ingredient like a chocolate chip that has dairy in it we would avoid any dairy that way it's just it's more for the customer who's looking or needs a dairy free um dessert that they they can know which ones are safe for them and we distinguish that in the shops with a red handle spade so any of the any of the uh containers that have red handles in them those are suitable for somebody who needs to avoid or wants to avoid dairy so how has your sort of your composition of your product had to have to evolve over the last few years with everything becoming so plant-based centric and vegan and dairy-free? Have you felt like it's posed a challenge for your team in the kitchen when you're testing and recipe testing to still have that same sort of dense, rich, creamy on the palate feel? But you're not using the dairy, which is yeah, like, well, how, how has that worked for you? Has I mean, it been a challenge? There hasn't been. Oh, I think um, there's been more nomenclature changes, uh, I'd say, in our packaged products. So our pints that we send out to grocery stores, we've actually made a conscious decision to rename them. So we used to call them mango sorbetto, for example. Now in our package, we say mango uh, plant-based mango gelato so that we're very clear, um, to the consumer. I mean, plant-based is a buzzword in the grocery store. So a lot of consumers are seeking things that are plant-based. Uh, so, you know, that, that fits in with what those consumers, that's the nomenclature those consumers are, are shopping with. Um, but the work has been done for us, um, probably a couple hundred years ago by, a talent. Nothing has changed in how we make the product um, because the science behind coming up with a creamy, dense, delicious uh, mango dairy-free dessert has been done, you know, for us. So uh, we haven't had to change anything as far as how we make the product. Um, we've changed how we've labeled it and packaged it. We haven't changed that in the shop because we have a a trained customer who knows what they're looking for right in the grocery store, you know, it's a, it's a different audience. So we've had to fit in more with what the industry is, the branding is, and just is calling sure. things. Uh, but the, um, the work has been done for us. Nothing has had to change. Now we have, um, taken advantage of some developments. Uh, so we have experimented with using almond milk, for instance, or cashew milk to make, dairy-free flavors that are not fruit-based. And I think that that's been very exciting for our brand is that 
using mango and sugar and water to make a very dense sorbetto, that's easy, uh, relatively easy. It's hard, but it's relatively easy. Um, but you know, consumers that are looking for dairy free want to experience chocolate or vanilla or you know all the multitude of uh, flavorings out there. And and you can see that if you're a a dairy-free shopper, plant-based shopper, if you go to your grocery store, the amount of choices you have this year versus last year versus last year, it's it's the fastest growing segment in the ice cream world right now. It still represents probably less than 10% of the overall ice cream market. So it's still relatively small, but it's doubling in size. So it's a it's definitely a high growth area in our industry. So we're, as a leading ice cream maker in the country we're we're following those trends and and um, and you're trying to stay ahead of them actually and, and trying yeah. to stay ahead of them but yeah. um but as far as formulations go and and how we actually make a product to fit into the parameters of the industry we're we're trying to succeed in um a lot of that work has been done for us by our predecessors who have been making gelato in sicily for 500 years without using milk um because they had to and they've got the science down with exactly how to make a smooth creamy dense delicious product that doesn't have milk in it because they weren't using milk then either so it's it's uh we don't have to do much work in that department what was the first flavor that you both came up with? And what, I mean, what was it like when you, were you sitting in that house, you know, kind of figuring it out in the kitchen there or did you? Well, I remember um, us having a conversation, you know, and when you're forming a business, there's a couple opportunities to kind of have some gut checks. And I think, you know, looking back at it today and a lot of people have asked, you know, would you, knowing what you know today, would you have still done it? And I think, we were in a very unique position in that we were, I was 23, 24 when we were starting this. We both felt kind of like we had nothing to lose. Um, we were very risk averse and and fine with taking something on. But I remember us having a conversation where we had never made a batch of gelato before. Um, even at home, we didn't have the equipment to do it. And we signed up for a learn how to make gelato course that uh, we took in New York City that I think we paid $300 each to go down to. And it was like a one or two day course. And it was put together by one of the ingredient houses. So there are these companies in Italy, Italy, you know, is the birthplace of gelato. And there's uh, a lot like in the United States where there's every range of quality of ice cream. So you have the Dairy Queen up to the, you know, salt and straw or whatever of like very high end ice cream. And it's the same in Italy. I mean, there's, there's low end gelato shops and there's high end gelato shops. And there are these purveyors that supply paste and powders that are basically gelato by number. You mix a certain amount of this paste in with a certain amount of milk and gelato comes out at the end. And, um, it's very easy to use. It's not very, um, good, but it's, um, it works for, the majority of the gelato that's sold in Italy actually is probably from these paste and powders. And they run these courses where you can go and learn how to do it. And this is kind of when gelato was starting to kind of enter the scene in the United States. So they were putting a lot of energy and effort uh, of introducing this. When you say they, who, um, like, purveyors from uh, Italy? Yeah. Or, so okay. Pre-Gel, I think, was the sponsor of this one. And, and Pre-Gel is a fine company. It's just that their business is really making gelato really simple so that a shop owner can essentially um, and craft in the back and yeah, just put it and, out. Yeah, and it's uh, it's and that's they started to grow in the United States. So a lot of when you've started to see gelato shops pop up, that's what's being done. So 
they sponsored this class and we took it and that was our first batch. So I remember though, taking, tasting my first gelato out of the batch freezer, which, you know, if you've never done before, you should come to gelato fiasco and do that. Cause that's essentially what we do every day. But, um, it's just, it was, it was something like I've never tasted before. What and, made it so unique? Uh, I mean, fresh gelato is just incredible. And, um, you know, most of the time you're not, you're not having, you know, gelato made five minutes before, but, uh, the, the flavors are just so intense and, um, and it was just fun, you know, and that's, I think what we immediately got addicted to was, wow, you know, like this flavor where you followed a recipe for, but once you learn the basics and how the proportion of, you know, gelato makers always think in terms of, of what the components are. So we're thinking in terms of milk fat and, uh, total solids and sweetness levels. So every ingredient that goes into a batch of gelato, we're thinking about it in terms of, you know, what is that ingredient bringing in terms of solids and sweetness and milk fat. And, um, so when I think of like strawberry, I'm thinking it's, it's actually 7% sugar. So I need to compensate, um, if I'm adding something extra sweet, like watermelon is way more sweet. So I need to think in terms of its components and keep the recipe balanced so that I'm always like looking for total composition of those things. And that's what got us excited is that both of both Bruno and I, because we were finance majors, right. maybe the like, math actually like sort of appealed to us. And, and that's something that Bruno got super um, good at actually. And he's probably made more batches of gelato than probably anyone in Maine for sure, but maybe in the United States. And, you know, he's a, he's a more numbers guy than I am. And he, I think, grew very much in love with the idea of every ingredient in the world, if you're thinking about it in terms of what it brings to the equation and how to keep the equation balanced and what you can do, like that's, um, and that's you also want to make sure that that one showcase ingredient can actually come through. Right. Um, otherwise you're just showcasing gelato custard, which you don't want to do. You want to, you know, as you say, yeah. variegate it. Yeah. You, right? well, you want the intensity <laughs> of flavor and you want it to, um, to shine and, um, there's also, you know, you want the background notes to support. So there's, there, he got really good and is still good at, um, at developing that. But when we started, we, I remember back to that conversation where we placed our first order for equipment on eBay. Uh, we bought a bunch of used equipment. We had signed a lease, a 10 year lease. Where was the building? Uh, in Brunswick, Maine, uh, okay. where our current location yep. is. Headquarters. We, had, we had never made a single batch. We had signed a 10 year lease. We had ordered our first equipment. It was on its way. And I remember us saying, geez, I really hope we're good at making gelato now because that's kind of what we just bet on that I hope we can actually figure that figure it out. Because I think up to that point, the total amount of batches we had made were maybe 20 between the two of us. And it was using um, ingredients from pre-gel, which were you know, anyone can, can make gelato from. You hadn't even done the real no. deal. <laughs> so is it, that where the name gelato fiasco came about? Do you have any major <laughs> like flavor fiascos? Well, I, that- I, when we started telling people what we had come up with that name and we had started telling people what the name was and, and they said, well, geez, I really hope that, um, you're kind of like tempting fate there with, uh, with, uh, <laughs> how, you know, picking that name is, um, you know, kind Almost of risky, prescient, right? Yeah. Like, like it's what sort happens of if it doesn't work? Like, and, uh, <laughs> so we got a lot of, you know, jokes out of that. And, um, no, the name came from, uh, we, 
we came up with it in Rome. Um, you know, it was on our business plan. I remember we had put it on the front page of the business plan and we had taken it to a meeting we had with a banker that we had done business with in the past. And we had just put on the cover page, like, um, at that point it was the gelato fiasco and the store in Brunswick still has that on the sign. Um, we've since, you know, dropped the, 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 we're like Facebook that way where we've dropped the, the, um, but it was on the title page was just the gelato fiasco. And we had had this meeting. We, we knew this guy and we had done deals with him in the past and we, you know, went to the meeting, sat down at the table and flipped him the business plan with the title page. And he glanced at it and he said, well, the first thing we're gonna have to do is put the real name of the business. Cause we don't want like the gelato fiasco to be on. He thought that that was a description of what the plan was going to be. Uh, and we said, no, 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 that is the name. And he said, why would you call it the gelato fiasco? That's not going to be easy to get a loan for. And um, sure enough, we didn't get a loan from him. He, <laughs> he never he never bought into the, into the idea. But the original concept was sort of the gelato fiasco was the time before we existed when gelato had been not done in an artisanal way. And so um, if you go to our shop in Brunswick, you'll see that there was, um, we're the archaeologists of gelato and that we've rediscovered this lost art. So you'll see on the walls of the shop in Brunswick and in Portland, um, artifacts of the red spoon, which is the symbol for the shop, which is what we serve all of our gelato with. Um, but you'll see the red spoon inserted in all these historical artifacts. So we have an Egyptian um, piece there that has, you know, the red spoon in the hieroglyphics. And the idea is that we rediscovered this like long tradition, this ancient tradition of making gelato that goes back, um, you know, like Indiana Jones. And uh, and that's what Bruno and I, you know, our imaginations uh, were that if you're going to go to that length, you got to have a name that matches that. And the name has served us well. I mean, we certainly get that question all the time. Like, where did you come up with this name? And um you know, the, uh, the first, the benefit of that is the first thing that a lot of people come and check out if we're ever at a trade show or we're ever set up and display people that it definitely gets people's attention to call your business, the gelato fiasco. And I love that it's, it's sort of self-deprecating. Like you guys don't take yourselves too seriously. Yeah. No, what you're doing we're is selling like, gelato. I mean, it's, it's fun. It's it, fun. Yeah. The mission of the company from day one is I've always said to every employee that's worked for us is that we want people to turn to each other on their way out after they visited us. They won't, they should be saying to each other, wow, that was really fun. We should come back. That's been our mission from day one. So our product is gelato, but what we're really selling is the experience of, of coming and having a, a fun time. Stay tuned. When we come back, Josh shares some of the hits and misses at the Flavor Foundry and what makes the Gelato Fiasco Scoop Shop experience unique and addictive. But first, a few words from our media sponsor, Eat Maine. Stick around. Eat Maine explores Maine's diverse and dynamic food and drink scene. From restaurants, distilleries and breweries, to farmers and foragers, cheesemakers and chocolatiers. Find these compelling stories in every issue of Maine Magazine, online and on Instagram at EatMaine. If you are enjoying this podcast, please take a second to hit the subscribe button on your app. To learn more about today's guest, visit my blog, MumbaiToMaine.com. Thanks for sticking around. And now back to my interview with Josh Davis, co-founder of Gelato Fiasco, one of the country's leading brands of artisanal gelato. 
So we were talking about how you were trying to make gelato a fun experience. How do you make gelato fun? We do that in a number of ways. You know, I mean, some of this is just accidental in that we didn't know what we were doing when we started the business. So a lot of these things, we weren't experienced restaurateurs. We weren't experienced. Uh, we had we had done a little bit of business together, but it was not to consumers. And I remember on the first day the shop opened, and we had we had had a, a chalkboard sign that listed the prices, but we never put any details up there about you know this many scoops with a small or this many with whatever. And the first customer said, "Well, how many flavors do I get in a small?" And I kind of thought about it for a second and and uh, had forgot to put that on the sign and said, well, you know, how many do you want? Like, get as many as you want. And they said, eh, how about three? And from that day forward, we just always have said, pick as many flavors as you want and you can get as many flavors you want in any size. Because for me, when I am a consumer, when I go to shops, ice cream shops, I find it, it's actually gelato fiascos ruined me this way in that if I go to an ice cream store and they say, well, you have to, I want to try four or five flavors. They'll say, well, you know, in order to try four flavors, you have to get a large and I don't want a larger gelato. I want three or four ounces and I want to try a little bit of a bunch of different flavors. So a lot of the things that Bruno and I um, applied to our business were driven by the conversations that we had had while we were consumers or visitors and guests at restaurants. And we had um, had those conversations sitting there. Well, why do we have to decide how many flavors should go into a small? We're using paddles, gelato spades to put them in a dish. If we train our employees, they are not using a scoop system. So you can get as many, we'll put a little dab of 25 different flavors. And those little things that sort of were accidental, you know, I mean, we made an intentional choice to stick with that. But those are the things that even today when I'm, you know, out and about and people talk about gelato fiasco with me, that's one of the things that everyone points out is I love how I can get five flavors when I go in. I don't have to buy it large to get five flavors. And so that's those those little things that we didn't think were going to be a big deal have really, um, you know, helped grow our business. And, and those are the things that when it comes down to, those are just more fun decisions. So, Josh, you've created all these flavors with Bruno over the years. What are your favorite flavors? Well, my all-time favorite flavor, uh, and one of the reasons why Gelato Fiasco even exists, is uh, I've been obsessed with the flavor of molasses peppermint, which we do make around Christmas time. I feel like it should be a year-round flavor, but it's the right combination. It's got that like molasses sweet flavor that comes at the beginning, and then it has the peppermint that shows up at the end. So I love flavors that have that kind of twofold um, experience, so that you get kind of two in one. Um, but it just works for me. So that's that's my all-time favorite. The rest of my staff, by the way, will all, they if they never saw it again, they'd be 100% fine. Um, <laughs> so, you know, controversial opinion. What does it take to retire a flavor? Uh, retire a flavor? Um, I don't think we ever have done that. So, really? well, that's not true. There, there have been a couple of huge misses. So um, tell us about the misses. I'm curious. <laughs> so, uh, the most memorable probably was uh, we did a sweet Vidalia onion flavor one time, um, which uh, was not only disgusting, but hilarious because uh, we had it in the case and the smell or the odor or the whatever started to seep into the other flavors and created a back note in all the other flavors. Like garlic in the freezer yeah, kind of thing. But, but oh. even more hilarious about it is people would ask to try it for some reason, but they would, they would 
take a spoon of it. And then their breath after they were talking to us over the case would just knock you over. So uh, that flavor lasted a couple hours. Uh, and, um, and, and it only lasted a couple hours, not because we threw it out, but somebody loved it so much. They were a huge onion fan and they were cooking steak that night. So they actually bought all the pints of it. They bought the rest of it out so that they could put a little scoop of it on their steak as like a, as a thing. And we never like made it again. Like an or something. Yeah, like. yeah. So sweet and savory steak. Yeah. So, uh, so that was, that was one of our worst flavors and, uh, the Sriracha peanut, um, that actually made it into pints. Um, we did that in pints in, I think about 2012 that never sold. I think we sold zero pints of it total. Uh, we ended up having to buy them all back for many customers. We sold them to as they just sat on shelves. It just was a bit too early. You know, a little salty, a little bit spicy, garlicky, um, but with it kind of tasted like a Thai peanut sauce, which I thought would work better, but no one else did. So, you know, you live and learn. And then another memorable fail was the uh, we actually collaborated with Whole Foods in New, in all of Northeast to do a line of sorbets to be used on oysters. So uh, we did a horseradish. Um, which we actually had to stop producing because we had injuries to employees in the making of it because we had to grind so much horseradish and we didn't realize what the effort was and how dangerous it was to just process horseradish, raw horseradish for hours at a time. So we had to evacuate the kitchen and get industrial fans to get the wasabi out because all, all of our employees like had like injuries in their eyes and they couldn't breathe and it was a big deal. So, so that was one of our worst fails. So those are the, uh, those are the greatest hits of our, of our big fails. So those flavors won't be coming back anytime. Um, Thank God for that. Especially the evacuations. But we do get requests all the time for, um, we, in the last couple of Super Bowls, we've done a lineup of like kind of Super Bowl flavors, uh, that would be appropriate. And we've done a blue cheese, which is Okay. Um, but we've also done a buffalo sauce, um, which um, which we get requests for year round. People just love the idea of buffalo sauce. So we did like a very intense buffalo sauce gelato that people ask us to make year round, which we only make for Super Bowl. So, so like right about so now. So it'll be coming up soon. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So what do you, you have like people who in the Red Spoon Society who like wait for it to come out? Yeah. So we actually, you can subscribe to our, we have a flavored alert system. So you can go to our website and you can see a list of flavors. Um, and you can check off flavors that you want to be alerted via text message or email when we make. So when it gets dropped in the case that morning, because we also publish an emailed flavor list every day. So it goes out to the uh, to anyone who subscribes to it so that you can see what flavors are in the case. Because, you know, on any given day, we have 40 flavors, half of which are generally there every day. They're popular enough that we have to make um, or people throw rocks at us or whatever. Uh, they're not nice if we don't have them. And How then, long does it take to make it from start to finish, a batch of gelato? It depends on the flavor. So, you know, some flavors are very simple in 10 to 20 minutes, and then some are more complicated and have multiple steps or layers or whatever, and those can take an hour or whatever. I'm so. totally like cyber stalking your Instagram videos on how to make the whole how to make series. Oh, nice. Yeah. I was looking at, I think there was the fluffer. The fl- uh, Nutter Fluffer. N- Nutter Fluffer. Yes, because Fluff and Nutter's trademarked. So uh, we had to change the name slightly. Nutter Fluffer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you guys need to follow um, the Gelato Fiasco Instagram feed. It's it's drool So it's- that flavor is our take on a Fluff and Nutter sandwich. 
So it has a, it's a peanut butter gelato. It has a marshmallow swirl. And for the white bread, it has pound cake. That was pound killer. Cake the piece, the big chunks of, and then I love the video of where you guys actually slice a pint down the middle, yeah, yeah. open it up to make sure that like there's consistency with all the pound cake and all the cookie dough. And I just thought, oh my God, how do you, how do you sign up for a gig like that? Who gets that job? How do you apply um, for a job like plenty that? Plenty of applicants, yeah. We, Love we, it. Plenty of volunteers for that job. Of I'll sign out up, gelato. that's for sure. <laughs> it doesn't pay well. It pays in gelato. Yum, that sounds good to me. So Josh, tell us about the cookbook. How did that all come about? Um, well, we collaborated with Cynthia Simmons, who did a lot of the recipe testing and development with us and helped us convert the recipes that we've developed that are for large-scale commercial gelato kitchens to be able to get them into a size that's appropriate. So she's she's a great writer. She's written several cookbooks and she is experienced in scaling them so that a home cook who maybe has different um, equipment than what we have in our kitchen uh, can actually effectively make them and and understand how to follow the recipes. What so. were some of the the absolute winners that went into the cookbook. They were just had to be in there. Well, I mean, you have the the most popular two flavors for gelato fiasco that we make that are popular nationally that we have every single day in our shops. Uh, probably the main wild blueberry crisp is um, our most signature flavor, but also the most popular. It's the one we have to have every day. Uh, that is a vanilla gelato and it has a blueberry jam variegate. So that's the swirl. And then it also has little crust, uh, crisp pieces of, of like crisp topping that you would make if you're making a blueberry crisp at home. So it's, it's our take on a blueberry crisp a la mode, uh, in gelato form. Neat. And so that's in there. Uh, the marscapone pistachio caramel, also, probably our most, uh, it's been historically our number one seller, uh, goes neck and neck with Blueberry Crisp. Uh, that is our take on what the filling of a cannoli should be, um, but done with mascarpone cheese and a uh, little candied pistachios in a kind of sweet, salty caramel swirl. So that those two f- uh, flavors are you know, consistently in our top flavors, and, and both of those recipes are in the cookbook. Are there any flavors out there that you've always wanted to sort of experiment with and have ne- never like sort of gotten down to it? What's what's out there that Josh hasn't gotten into yet? Oh, um, I don't think I've left too many stones uncovered in that realm. Um, recently, I've been wanting to do a take on a Pop-Tart. Uh, I've been more interested in, in flavors that are inspired by nostalgic kind of 90s. So I'm, you know, I was born in the 80s, so I'm a of a child of the nineties and, you know, grew up with all these kind of crappy, uh, mass produced, um, things like Dunkaroos or pop tarts or, uh, you know, any of the little Debbie snacks. So I have been experimenting. None of them have made it into the case yet, but they're, you know, all flavors that we've been kind of wanting to produce that kind of, uh, are hitting those people that are around our age that are, um, looking for those types of nostalgic kind of plays from maybe their childhood. Have you had any dream-inspired flavors where you've literally woken up from a dream and you're like, I have to make this? I don't think so. Although um, one of our, um, I think our marketing, um, uh, our Bobby Garrett, who runs our marketing department, has definitely come up with flavors based on dreams, but I don't think they've ever been good. <laughs> well, that was probably the end of that then. It probably didn't make it into a pint, but... Yeah. 
When we return, I'll conclude my interview with Josh Davis, co-founder of Gelato Fiasco, one of the leading gelato brands in the country. But before we do, if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button on your app and share it on your social media page. Better yet, visit my blog, mumbaidomain.com, where I reconnect with my cultural roots through family recipes and nostalgic anecdotes. I hope this podcast inspires you to explore the best of Maine's food scene and your own culinary heritage. I would love to hear from you, so find me on Instagram at Mumbai to Maine or send me a note at mumbaidomain.com. Thanks for staying with us. And now back to my interview with Josh. So what inspires the flavors? I mean, you had 1,500 flavors in the last, you know, since 2007. I mean, do you stay up at night thinking about what's the next big hottest trend and how you can also sort of be inspired with the flavor and and stay ahead of everything? And I mean, how do you guys come up with them? How do you stay so fresh and creative and and ahead of ahead of trying. Well, I'd say thankfully a lot of the work is now. I mean, we we have been so lucky because we have a staff, a, a team that's in a lot of cases have been with us for you know, some in some cases from almost the very beginning, um, and so we're not the only ones anymore uh, that are uh, have privileges to write recipes and try stuff out. So some of it is our our staff who. Um, can come up with some killer um, flavors themselves and we get excited about it and we say go. Uh, some of them are driven from collaborations that we do with other brands. Um, the one that comes to mind are, you know, every year we have probably the most difficult job is coming up with the collaboration flavors with Main State Music Theater uh, with their shows. Uh, so, uh, so tell us a little bit, a little bit more <laughs> about that because I have a vested interest. My 12-year-old um, made sure when she left for school this morning that she said, make sure you ask Josh how that all comes about because she's an avid Main State Music Theater fan. She's in the shows. And and that's sort of a rite of passage when you're at Main State Music Theater. You do have to walk down the street, go to Gelato Fiasco after opening night and just, you know, get loaded up, you know, with, with your yeah. favorite flavors. And of course, you have to dig into the Main State Music Theater flavors. So tell us about that. What a fun collaboration. Well, it's... Uh, it's <laughs> I say it's the hardest job I have because there's now uh, we've had so much um, fun flavors that we've come up with that now the the the, uh, the you there's a standard that has to be met to come up with a flavor that has usually it, it gets read off from the stage so it has to be funny right uh, and, and it has to fit the show for to the fit season the show. it usually is an inside joke to the people, to the audience, but it also has to be well-known enough that people get the joke and it has to taste good. It has to be a, a flavor that will actually be a popular flavor. Right. So, you know, the one that has probably been our, you know, two, one that made it big time is for the ABBA show, uh, Mamma Mia, uh, which is based on the ABBA songs. We did uh, Doing Me, Doing You, which is from the song Knowing Me, Knowing You. That's uh, great. And that is uh, all the cookie doughs. So it's... Um, um, we use the acronym on the back and it's an inside joke. So I, I like having, you know, we called ourselves gelato fiasco cause we like to have fun. Right. Uh, so we, um, have on the back of the, it, it made it into pints. So it's actually a flavor that we have a nationwide distribution. So always be about the mix in. So we underline the A, B, B, A that are in the, um, in the, in the it, opening right. and very few customers get it, but the ones that do really get a kick out of it. But that's one that made the big time because it, A, has cookie doughs in it. It has 
brownie batter bites. It has uh, peanut butter cookie dough and chocolate chip cookie dough, fudge chunks, and uh, in a vanilla gelato. So it's going to be a, a winning flavor anyway. You know, any flavor with cookie dough in it is going to be a flavor that people get excited about in Maine. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, that flavor was popular just for if you just told people that description, it would be popular. And then the you know the reference to Abba during the show you know, always got a laugh from the stage and and that's kind of what we're going for. So that's like gold. Yeah. Uh, for Fiddler on the Roof, I came up with uh, Bitty Bitty Babka. Um, and the process that I, I, I don't come up with 100% of the flavors and right now we're kicking around all the flavors for next year. Um, but they give us a list of the shows kind of well in advance. Um, and we start, I usually either watch the show or watch some of the songs from YouTube, read the Wikipedia articles. And I remember sitting down and, you know, watching Fiddler on the Roof and like right, jotting down some ideas for either pun things that we could use. And and there's a shared Google Doc right now with our team of writing down references. And we we just toss ideas around until something, you know, everyone can sort of say, oh, I get it. That's really funny. And there's a flavor that can come from the name that will also be good. So endlessly creative. I just I just cannot get enough of it. And here's another <laughs> one. Luck be a lady fingered tonight, gelato. Yeah. From guys and dolls. <laughs> from I love guys it. and dolls, yeah. Hopelessly devoted to cashew gelato. Oh yeah, yeah. These were old, older Klein? seasons. Um that was celebrating Greece. Oh, hopelessly yeah. devoted to cashew, right? Yeah, the Patsy uh, Klein, uh I can't remember. I think there were two flavors for Patsy Klein. Always Patsy Klein. Fall to Reese's. Oh, I fall. I fall to Reese's. Yeah. from the you know famous I fall to song. pieces. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> and what a fun gig. I mean, I was I, I was thinking to myself. I wonder if he actually has someone who who's like designated to be the person to come up with this. And no, work. it's, it's usually me. Team. No, oh, yeah. I mean the the final decision, I guess, comes down to me. But you know, I we take suggestions from the whole team and you know try to come up with some that win. So right now we're trying to come up with a bicentennial. We have a couple bicentennial flavors uh, for Maine that we're overdue on actually right now because those are coming out what in two months or whatever. So, uh, so how exciting! Yeah. Do we get some early? Um, insight. There's here? nothing good yet. So, I mean, there's a couple ideas that may have promise, but they're not there yet. So that's awesome. Um, so tell us a little bit about your collaboration with Bixby and co, um, with Kate McLear. She's been on the podcast. She was telling us about how excited she was to collaborate with, um, with Gelato Fiasco. Um, what is that experience like for you to, to, um, to support another main based business, um, another food entrepreneur, um, have fun with it. How, how long does something like that take from start to finish? Cause you both have busy calendars. You both have agendas and have your own responsibilities within your business, but now you're getting outside of it to collaborate. Well, does I that think, excite you? Yeah. And I think it, um, with somebody like Kate, I mean, Kate is just so dynamic and she's, um, so creative with what she's doing and, and taking on whatever's next. And so, uh, it's always inspiring actually to work with somebody like her just because she's pushing forward her business and, um, she likes to bring people along. And I think that that's always been kind of our thing too, which is why we, we, I get contacted often by people who are starting off and they're looking for, uh, advice or help or, you know, dealing with, some of the challenges that are, that we all face. And I think that that's how Kate and I first bonded is that, um, we both kind of, despite, I mean, 
we've faced our own challenges and continue to face them all the time. I mean, it's a difficult, it's a difficult business. And so, um, coming from Maine and trying to do what Kate's doing and what we're trying to do and what a lot of other Maine entrepreneurs are doing, um, it really benefits to stick together and to share best practices and things that we've learned either the hard way or to allow other entrepreneurs to leapfrog those things so that they don't have to go through those mistakes or, near-death experiences. And so we're just trying to create unlocks for, for other brands and try to get those from, um, from, from her. And, you know, I think that given where we live and how much our customers, um, which in a lot of cases are shared customers get excited about seeing those things come together. Um, you know, the, it's it, it plays to them. It's more yeah. power. And yeah. so it creates opportunities for us to network and grow together, but it also gives the consumer something fun, like our customers, something fun that they can, um, say, wow, I hadn't thought that that would be go together. Now, obviously working with the chocolate, uh, supplier that's up the road from us is relatively easy for us. We've done uh, collaborations with Urban Farm Fermentary with a kombucha that's made from chaga. Um, that's a more of a stretch. That's more of a difficult thing to kind of connect the dots back to gelato. Uh, with Kate, you know, we, I think, honestly, we riffed those ideas together over a couple days and you know, we made it happen. She's, she's a, she's a rainmaker herself. And, you know, we, we love the idea of challenging our staff to kind of take on new challenges and get those things done. So, you know, there's, there's uh it's been publicized, but I can share the news that, um, you know, she's going to be opening a chocolate experience cafe in Waterville, which is near and dear to my heart. Cause it's the, you know, close to where I grew up and, you know, we're going to be part of that with her. And, and oh, is that right? Yeah. She didn't so. tell me that part. She did tell us that she was opening up in Waterville. We yeah. discussed that. And I think that's really cool. So it is, is that store going to be a collaboration or? Is I think it it's still ta just taking shape as far as exactly what form will be involved, but we've been working with her on gelato that features her ingredients. So, um, Netflix and chill. <laughs> well, we don't use her chocolate in that. Maybe we should, but, uh, but yeah, no, the, uh, you know, there's some great, um, flavors and right now, um, you know, that's still taking shape as far as like, what the final you know, collaboration will look like. But we just, we, we like saying yes to ideas like that just cause it's benefits, benefits Maine and benefits both companies. Now, has anyone ever compared you guys to Ben and Jerry? I mean, well, we have the B and the J names going for us, so right. the Bruno and Josh. So, And uh, also the fact that you guys, you both picked a cold state to produce ice cream and gelato, respectively. Why did you want to be a maker in Maine? Why did you both choose Maine and say, yes, this is going to be the soil where we decide to create, you know, the gelato fiasco story? <laughs> well, I think you'd have to blame my parents for that because they, uh, I was born here, so, um, you know, I, I've... I guess I was a kid growing up and, you know, thought that, um, couldn't wait to leave Maine and, and wanted to live somewhere else probably. And, um, did do that as far as I picked a college outside of Maine. But, um, I think as I lived outside of Maine, I got more and more excited about the quality of life and the other things that make Maine really special and great to live in. And so, um, I never saw it as a disadvantage actually to be in a state that's cold. I mean, I think, the numbers bear that out that the north the northeast despite its weather is still one of the highest per capita 
consumers of ice cream in in uh, in the United States. So you know, Mainers and New Englanders in general eat a lot of frozen dessert. So. Um, I mean, let's face it, if you if you let the weather decide what whether you're going to eat ice cream or not, it would be a very brief ice cream eating season uh, here in Maine. Those, you know, couple hundred days or a hundred days or less would be uh, would be it. So, you know, I, I don't think we ever even thought much of it. We knew it would be a business challenge. And, um, you know, certainly we are very seasonal, uh, but we decided kind of early on that, um, we were going to try to be as um, contrarians to things like that. And that's why we don't close for, you know, for the off season. We're open three, we're, we're closed on Christmas Day and Thanksgiving Day and that's it. Uh, and Gelato Fiasco Day. Um, what's is, that about? What's Gelato Fiasco Day? <laughs> it's a tradition that we started, uh, I think our first year. Well, no, the first year is actually what uh, taught us that we should just close on that day. But the day we're our staff works incredibly hard all all summer long. It's it's very very busy. We do as much business from Memorial Day to Labor Day, which is roughly a hundred days, as we do the whole rest of the year. So it's wow. it's extremely busy summer, and we're open every single day. And it's long hours, and the lines start in the morning and they go until we officially don't. Keeping with our fun tradition, we officially don't. We we have hours, but we never turn anyone away. So even if we cl- say we close at eleven, we and there's a line out the door at eleven, we serve every customer that's in line. So and I can I can attest to that because we have been there at eleven o'clock, and the line has been out the door in Brunswick, Maine, after a show at Maine State Music yes. Theater. So we never turn anyone away, and uh, so that leads to long long nights or early mornings in a lot of cases. And and in the summertime, people are at the shop twenty. 24 hours a day, um, either getting the shop ready for the next day, making gelato, um, cleaning, or you know serving. So it's a very long season, and Labor Day hits, and we're very busy on Labor Day itself, which is a Monday. Gelato Fiasco Day is the day after Labor Day on a Tuesday, which traditionally on the one or two days that we've tried it have always been our slowest days because people are back to their non-summer routines and it's just a slow day. People are back to school. They're doing their own thing. They're, you know, back to their thing. So we give as an appreciation to our staff, we give that day off as a, you know, way to celebrate a successful season. So we've always called it Gelato Fiasco Day just as a, you know, that's awesome. It's, it's more like holiday. gelato siesta day. Yeah. Where you just yeah. lay back and relax. And well, don't ironically, think about the staff all gets together usually and hangs out. So, you know, after a really long season, uh, you know, that's, that's ends up being what, uh, what's up ends up happening. But, um, yeah, so we are open that whole, that, that whole period of time, which, um, includes snow days, winter days, and, um, some days are very, very slow, but there are people who come out even in snowstorms. And I mean, we've had to do, we've lost power at the shop before we've had candle lit, uh, gelato, um, you know, eating time because we haven't that had power so in the shop, but actually. you know, that sounds very romantic. People want their gelato <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we do benefit from being in a, in a town where, um, you know, we have a, an audience of people that are, that have been loyal customers for a long time. And they, my original thing was no one should have to carry around a spreadsheet to know when the shop's going to be open. And if somebody's made the commitment to 
go and get off their couch on a snowy day, we want to make sure that we're there. Uh, so, you know, we try to not mess around with the hours that often. And Consistency is, yeah. is as important in service as it is in gelato, right? Yes, yeah. That's awesome. Well, this was such a pleasure speaking with yeah. you today. I've yeah, learned so much. <laughs> it's always fun to talk to a lot of fiasco. Thank you so much for being in the studio today. It's been a pleasure, My and pleasure. I can't wait to see what those two new flavors are going to be for the Bicentennial. Yeah. You might have to come back. Stay tuned. Thanks, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Special thanks to my guest, Josh Davis. Tune in to my next episode where I'll feature world-renowned chef Melissa Kelly, a two-time winner of the James Beard Award for Best Chef Northeast and owner of Primo, one of the country's most renowned and successful farm-to-table kitchen restaurants right in Rockland, Maine. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. The audio and music for this podcast was produced by G3Logic Media Design.